We read this evening from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Tonight I call your attention to those last two verses, Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, one might easily take as the theme of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, the glorious body of Christ. As we turn to these last two verses of Ephesians 1, we find the focus not on the body, first of all, but on the head, who is Christ. These verses still stand connected with that fervent prayer of the apostle for the church, those whose faith in the Lord Jesus has been evident also in their love for all the saints. Because he knows that such exemplary Christian living is dependent upon continued living out of Christ and partaking of the love of God revealed in Christ. And therefore he prays for our increased knowledge, knowledge of that hope unto which God has called us, and knowledge of the riches of God's inheritance among us, and in order to understand at all the abundant riches of our hope, we have to know the exceeding great power of God in Christ that already works in and into the church. Our very believing is the result of that great power. The whole of our Christian life, from beginning to end, is the result of the power of God in us. And the assurance of our hope the riches of the life unto which God has called us are dependent on that same power, exceeding great power, power which raised Christ from the dead and exalted him in heavenly glory and which has also put all things under his feet. The apostle prays for us because he knows that knowledge is important for our Christian faith and life. We don't live in that knowledge as we ought. It's easy to make, uh, make common talk of knowing our hope, knowing the great power of God, being Christian. There is, in fact, a strong tendency to speak superficially about believing as if that were an easy thing and living in hope as if anyone can do that if he wants to. But if we would know really what the apostle is praying for for us, our first reaction would be one of amazement 
that we are Christians at all. And our immediately following reaction would be one of praise and thanksgiving coming to clear expression. To know these things as the apostle prays for us would be the remedy of all sourness toward the gospel, failure to sing praises unto God, would be the correction for all the lack of thankfulness in our lives. Because truly, God has done wonderful things for us. And that comes to its perfect manifestation in the amazing truth that He has given Christ to stand in such a relationship to us that He is our head and we, the members of his body. The church is the fullness of that glorious head, so that he in whom we stand is he who fills all in all. We look at this text then, the theme of which is our glorious head. May the Spirit fill us with That blessed knowledge as we see here, first of all, an amazing picture. Secondly, a vital relationship. And finally, a blessed significance. The text before us is an amazing picture. He who is head over all is given more specifically as the head to the church. We stand here before one of the great doctrines of Holy Scripture, the doctrine of the church in relationship to Christ. And a precious doctrine it is. So simple and yet so profound. This relationship is termed in Ephesians 5, a great mystery. And indeed it is. Undoubtedly, that is why Scripture uses several figures of speech to describe the church. The figure of the church as a body is rather commonly used in the New Testament. In the last, but that's not the only picture. In the last part of chapter 2 of Ephesians, this same apostle refers to the church as a household, a family. Believers are members of the household of God. In the same text, he uses the figure of a building. Speaking of the church being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and that together it forms a holy temple unto the Lord. So another figure of speech. In chapter 5, as I mentioned, he, he speaks of the church as a bride and its relationship to Christ as the, the mold for the relationship of Christian marriage, husband and wife. Elsewhere, we considered not long ago in, in connection with Lord's Day 7, the church being spoken of in terms of a plant, 
with Christ himself being the vine and his members the branches. All these pictures are designed to give us some understanding of that mysterious and beautiful relationship between Christ and his church. And so also here, we're not to examine this great doctrine of the church and her relationship to Christ in a theoretical manner, but are interested in it in order to see how the exceeding great power of God actually works in us and operates upon us to, and to what effect. So we are speaking now about Christ as the head of the church. You'll notice, however, the text speaks of Christ as head over all things. And the text initially continues the thought expressed in verse 21 that Christ has been exalted over all. But in verse 22, we see that Christ exalted over all has been given by that same exceeding great power of God to be head over all things. But God gave him to be head over all things to the church. That's the emphasis of the text. He who is head over all is given as head to the church. And he's whose head over all things functions as head over all things for the sake of his church. And that this is the proper understanding is evident from verse 23, which tells us that the church is his body. The most significant aspect of this figure is the relationship which it draws between us and Christ. You and I are joined to Christ. Head and body are one. Organically united. We're one in a living way. Not mechanically, but one organically. There's life. And that belongs to the very essence of what the Apostle is teaching here, to the very figure of the human body. body has a multitude of parts. Go to the cellular, cellular level, we're talking about millions of parts. It's an extremely complex creation of God. To master the study of the human anatomy or physiology, the function of the human body, is an extremely challenging task. That's often why doctors specialize. Tremendously challenging task to understand the complexity of the human body. But the marvel of the human body is not the multiplicity and complexity of the various parts. But it's that everything functions 
in an organic, essential unity. And we are reminded of that whenever we suffer sickness or an injury. Your fingers aren't simply tied on. We don't have detachable parts. There's a living connection between the various parts of the body. And that's a great mystery, of course, but there's a sense in which we we may say that, that as the various parts of the body all develop out of an original self, so everyone who is born again is an offshoot of Christ in living connection to him. We're not merely loosely attached to him. You mustn't think of him that way. As if we we become loosely attached to him by faith. We're not loosely attached to him. although some who claim his name seem to want to live that way, run with the world, dance with the world, drink with the world. It's as if Christ is somewhere out on the fringes. No, not the way it is. We're very much one with him. And this is the only way you can even begin to understand the profound text given us in 2 Peter 1 verse 4 where we are spoken of as partakers of the divine nature. Astounding. That's an astounding expression. You and I are one, organically one, With Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. Now you recognize that we're speaking of a unity that God himself creates. You and I can't bring this unity into being. No more than a hand suddenly attaches itself to the body can you and I suddenly attach ourselves to Christ. The very thought is absurd. And also here we are shown that it is the work of the Holy Spirit alone that makes a Christian. God accomplishes that work. It's the result of his exceeding great power. And for that reason, this relationship of the believer to Christ is not something that depends upon us. Although we have a very clear and specific calling in the places God has given us, and our connection with Christ does not depend upon our works or our faithfulness. It's the work of the Spirit, and therefore it's permanent. There is no such thing as being part of the body one minute and out of it the next. It may be true. It is true. One might backslide, One might even become so consumed with sin that, as we read in our canons of Dort, 
in the fifth head of doctrine, he might interrupt the very exercise of his faith and lose the sense of God's favor for a time. Very possible. And it can even appear in such a case that one's not part of the body. One might even have to be put out by the ordinance of Christian discipline. But don't forget, even that act is in recognition of the fact that God sometimes uses that means to restore those who are His. One who is truly a child of God, an elect member of the body of Christ, has an organic spiritual union with Christ, which union cannot be broken. Remember, Christ and the church is a picture of marriage in Ephesians 5. Why is that put before us? Because marriage cannot be broken. No more than Christ's relationship to his church can be broken. So, in such a case, the Spirit says, the Spirit, according to our canons in the fifth head, Article 7, will most certainly and effectually renew them to repentance. That they may again experience the favor of a reconciled God, their place in the body of Christ. But let's look more carefully at that relationship between the head and the body. Paul's speaking of Christ as the head from a particular viewpoint. Sometimes we speak of of head in the sense of authority or government. And there is a sense in which we speak of Christ that way. His is all authority. He's not only head of the body, he's the king of the church. That's an essential element of his headship too. Let's not forget. We recognize him as Lord of our life. We bow before his word. But that's not what the gospel is emphasizing here when the apostle speaks of Christ as head of the church. The point of emphasis here is that as the head of the church, Christ is the very source and focus of the life of the church. As the body derives its vital energy, its all its source of function is in the head, so Christ is the source and fountain of life for his church. That's the emphasis. It's striking how the Holy Spirit uses the apostle to, uh, moves the apostle to use that figure. You have to remember, Paul, nor anyone around him, not even Luke the physician, had the knowledge of anatomy and physiology that we have today. 
And yet the figure of speech used here is perfect. Another demonstration of the knowledge of God the Creator as ministered by the Holy Spirit. There is not a part of our bodies which is not controlled by the central nervous system in the brain, in the head. The life in every muscle, every part of the body is conveyed to it by the head, by the brain. It's the center and source that controls the whole body. Never is there life in any member of the body apart from the head. Such is the relationship in which you and I stand to the living head who is Christ. We stand in organic union with him. That's the relationship that God has established between us and Christ. We considered it just a couple weeks ago as that relationship of faith, that bond of faith, in organic union with Christ, the head, through the Spirit which was given to him and which he has poured out into his body, the body partakes of the life of the head. So that constantly, from moment to moment, there is a a life current, as it were, from the head into the body and all the members of the body, quickening them, causing them to live even as he lives. And that life, let's not forget, is the resurrection life of Christ. It's the life of him who's exalted over all. He who is head over all, God has given to be the head of the church, which is his body. And as the life of the head, so the life of the body. That life of the head, let's not forget, is victorious, glorious, incorruptible, holy, eternal. And because of our living connection with that head, our life as a church of Jesus Christ partakes of all those same characteristics. You believe that? although now it does not yet appear what shall be. As John wrote in his first epistle, when Christ shall appear, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. So also, now we know what is the hope of our calling and the riches of God's inheritance among the saints. For as is the head, so is the body. This relationship to Christ our head is a vital relationship. That's emphasized in verse 23, where we, the body, are said to be the fullness of him that filleth all in all. In the first place, those words tell us that the Lord fills his whole body with his own life. 
In Colossians 2 verse 9, we are told that in Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the, bo- of the Godhead bodily. And then we are reminded of what John wrote in John 1 verse 16, of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. Christ himself, therefore, is the unity of the church. True unity only comes in Christ and therefore in his truth. That unity may even cross over denominational barriers and does. Christ's body, in fact, is gathered from every nation, tribe, and tongue. A multitude which no man can number. But that body, which is the church, is a body which has its life and unity in Christ and in him alone. Because in him alone, he fills all in all. He fills the body with his own life. Think about this. In all. He fills the whole body. From the least to the greatest. From what we might look at as the most significant member of the body to the least member. He fills them. Everyone. Each member according to his or her own capacity. Completely filled. And that he fills all means that his life fills every aspect of our being. Our heart and mind and soul and strength and will. Again, I realize that hardly seems the case now when even the best have but a small beginning of the new obedience, as our catechism states it. But You mustn't make this text refer only to heavenly glory as if it will only take place then because the text speaks in the present tense. While it's true that the final perfection of of this all in all shall not be received until the perfection of glory, it's just as true that Christ fills all things even now. He doesn't dwell in merely part of us. His life doesn't touch merely part of our bodies. You who are in Christ are new creatures. New creatures, exactly because Christ fills all in all. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He fills us with all his spiritual blessings. His resurrection life, the spiritual knowledge of the things of his kingdom, with understanding and spiritual wisdom to discern what is the hope of our calling, fills us with the longing for the things above and the gospel which points us to Christ, 
with a fervent desire for spiritual perfection, with faith and hope and love, He fills us. And when the text says that He fills us, it doesn't speak of the work of a moment, as when you go to the gas station and fill up your car with fuel. He speaks rather of a constant activity. Just as the head is constantly laboring and expressing itself through the members of the body. So he works in us constantly. Accomplishing his own good Is there faith in the Lord Jesus and love toward the saints, as Paul heard testified of the church in Ephesus? Does the foot move forward, pressing toward the hope that lies before us? Is there willing service to advance the cause of Christ? and to testify of the gospel that we hear and which has been written upon our hearts? Is there care toward God's afflicted saints, toward the poor and needy? Is there any labor of love to distinguish the warm-hearted, self-denying, careful follower of Jesus from the lazy, self-indulgent follower of the world? Are hearts filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory? Are consciences filled with peace? Is there submission to the Word of God? earnest longings and desires to grow in grace. It all comes from Christ, the living head of the body. Out of His own fullness, He fills the church, all His saints according to measure. What heart can conceive, what tongue can express the treasures of grace and glory that are expressed by this picture of our glorious head. But what is absolutely astounding about this text is that Paul tells us that this vital relationship in which we ourselves are completely dependent upon Christ is a relationship in which we, with the whole church, are the fullness of Christ. The church is that which fills Christ and without which he's not full. What does that mean? I trust you understand that the Lord Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God is eternally self-sufficient and independent. He has no need of us. He is never dependent upon us for his fullness. But let's not forget, this passage is speaking not of the eternal Son of God as such, but as 
he became flesh to dwell among us, and therefore in relationship to us. And so the focus is on the God-established relationship between him and us. A head alone is not complete. A head needs a body. You don't think of a head without the body. The Son of God, by becoming incarnate, needed a body of which he would be the head. Without it, he would be as a bridegroom without a bride, as a shepherd without sheep, a foundation without a building, a vine with no branches. In that sense, the church is his fullness. But even then, let's remember, it's not the church in herself that makes Christ complete. You and I will never claim to have added anything to his glory because all that we have and ever shall have comes from him. Yet the church and the head belong together. That church is ordained of God to be the instrument through which the manifold riches of his grace must shine forth from the head. In that sense, the church fills Christ because he fills her. In her, all his love is focused and comes to expression. His love isn't spread everywhere. It belongs to the body. In her, his work, his grace, his glory are complete. And when she is brought home to be with him in glory forevermore, she will be seen as perfectly reflecting the glories of his grace in his fullness. That's the amazing New Testament presentation of the church as the body of our glorious head. The significance of this truth is really blessed. We are called in meditating upon this truth to see the exceeding great power of God being worked in us. In us. We've been given to see it tonight in a young woman and an elderly woman in whom God has worked. We need to see his work in us, too. Through Christ our head, we have life forevermore. We must realize that however much we might be aware of our sins and weaknesses and the strength of sin within us and around us, 
the greatness of our spiritual struggle from day to day. We as members of Christ's body belong to Him who is our head. His lifeblood fills us. Apart from me, ye can do nothing, he says. But with him, all things are possible. So that we may say with the apostle in Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. He's my head. And so as we contemplate life and all its difficulties, and as we are tempted by Satan to feel that all is impossible, and we, we can't go on because we're so weak, we must remind ourselves of this glorious truth. I may be a very small and unimportant member, but I'm a member of the body of Christ. I'm in Him. And therefore, whatever may be true of me personally, whatever may be my circumstances, whatever is my nature, and all the rest, the life of the head is in me. His living energy is in me. The Apostle prays that the saints at Ephesus and we together with them might understand this and live in this knowledge. We stand in a living, inseparable relationship with Christ our head. Wherein in time past, or by nature we say, we were dead in trespasses and sin being brought to the depths by Adam, our legal head, a great change has been wrought in us by the power of God. We're now in Christ, members of His body. Whatever the head does, the body does. Where the head leads, the body follows. So we've been crucified with Christ, says the scripture. We've been risen with him. I, the man who is born dead in sin, am alive in Christ. I'm dead to sin. And even as the power of God raised Christ from the dead, so I've risen with him. That's the emphasis in the context of this blessed teaching of Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. Now do you understand why the apostle wrote in Romans 6, verse 11, Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive Unto God? This all follows inevitably from the truth that 
Christ is the glorious head of the church of which we are members. Do you believe this? Are you living in the knowledge of this truth? Is this to you an absolutely exhilarating truth? What a glorious God we serve. stand before the wonders of his gospel and to see these things has to fill our hearts with overwhelming praise toward God. And what tremendous application to our Christian life and warfare, our spiritual development, our growth in holiness, God has given Christ to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Amen. Father, we rejoice in the wonder work of thy grace. the love bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ, and the faith thou hast given us, uniting us to our head and giving us his life. Father, we pray that thou wilt continue to apply thy word to our hearts by thy Holy Spirit, that more and more we live in this knowledge and rejoice in Thee, our God, for Jesus' sake. Amen.